Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Not Safe for Wonks. Brandon Buchanan here along with Kennedy Cooper and Leia Rose. Uh, we have a very special guest here with us rocking in the studio. He's running in the Illinois 7th District, and that's a really interesting district. We're going to get into the <laughs> where's and why's of that in a little bit. Anthony Clark, uh, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Truly appreciate it. And looking forward to uh, speaking tonight on the importance of this progressive movement. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We're very pleased to have you on. Yeah, we're truly excited to speak with you. So, Anthony Clark, if you could just kind of start off by just letting people know who you are and why you decided to run for Illinois 7th District Congress. Yeah, no question. I'll try to keep it short and sweet. Uh, so my name is Anthony Clark. I'm a disabled military veteran, served six years active duty in the United States Air Force. Uh, what I tell people, essentially, I was uh, drafted within the poverty draft, just based upon struggling as a youth. Uh, both my parents, you know, sacrificed all their lives to provide me with greater opportunity. But yet I found myself void of opportunity, uh, you know, just trying to escape gun violence and so many different friends losing their lives or incarcerated. Uh, and the military essentially prayed on on me uh, like they prey on millions of other working class poor individuals throughout this country you know they offered you know of course free health care free housing a, a guaranteed job opportunity you know and free education you know many of the things that we're currently fighting for now with this progressive platform so i entered into the military uh did six years active duty i was shot in 2007 uh after being shot i was also diagnosed with what's known as bichette's disease it's an autoimmune deficiency essentially working with chemicals the military is one of the uh, largest polluters uh within this nation and this world you know based upon carbon emissions and so on and so forth so got out went through the truth of teachers program became a special education public high school teacher i've been teaching for 11 years now i have experience in charter school settings so i know why privatization is a huge issue why unions are so important you know i taught in an alternative setting so i see what lack of investment in schools has done to our educational systems was cps public for in 2012 so i was uh, in the first strike year stood in solidarity as we fought for uh, better accommodations and support for teachers and students and now I've been back teaching at my current alma mater, actually, Oak Park and Reports High School, uh, where I graduated from. So total of 11 years teaching, lost 12 students to gun violence in, within those 11 years. Uh, so from that frustration, formed a nonprofit. So I'm also the founder and director of a nonprofit known as Suburban Unity Alliance, where we essentially attack equity issues within our community and surrounding areas. And I mean, we do everything, you know, everything, the issues are interconnected. So the solutions have to be interconnected as well. So we've done everything from, you know, work on supporting the homeless to paying for college, to paying rent, to paying mortgages, to paying for groceries, to helping victims of sex trafficking, to eliminating Columbus Day and implementing Indigenous Peoples Day in our community, to collaborating on the welcoming village ordinance in our community. It just, you know, on and on. Uh, so honestly, from that, you know, I never saw myself as a politician, never considered myself wanting to run. You know, I was jaded by the political system, yet still boots to the ground like so many of our young leaders are. Uh, but what happened was multiple members of the community actually nominated me to run in 2017 through brand new Congress and Justice Democrats. So I met, you know, individuals like now Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, Paula Jean Swearsen. We call ourselves the OGs. Uh, the originals. And, you know, I decided to run essentially because I set myself down and, and told myself I could either dedicate the rest of my life to treating symptoms and what that looks like is feeding the homeless, or I could engage in giving all of my energy within a movement to address root cause issues and end homelessness. Uh, so that's essentially why I accepted that nomination, uh, because I felt like the only way to change things at a systemic level uh, was to change policy. Yo, Anthony, can you talk a little bit about, for people who like just hear about 
your area on TV. Can you let people kind of know what the political power structure is like in Illinois, uh, right. and especially in Chicago and your neighborhood, like in terms of what's being done in or, uh, to help from the, the structure of Congress, the mayors, what's their political alignment right now? Yeah, I mean, Illinois as a state is extremely corrupt. Uh, I think within the past three years, we've been either one, two, or three in regards to individuals migrating out of the state. If you scale that down, Chicago is extremely corrupt. You know, uh, we're under the, the history of the dailies. Extreme corruption. You know, we've had multiple governors incarcerated. Uh, we've had multiple politicians incarcerated, multiple mayors in trouble throughout our history. Uh, but of course, we also have fighters within our history, like uh, the great late Harold Washington. So you have that dichotomy that exists at a political level. You know, Rahm Emanuel, who came up under Barack Obama, you know, was our prior mayor. Uh, there was huge issues with his leadership in regards to just lack of investment in predominantly black and brown communities, huge issues in regards to lack of accountability for our police forces uh, that are extremely corrupt and racist and target black and brown communities disproportionately. There's huge issues in regards to him working with Arnie Duncan, Mr. Privatization, in regards to defunding our public school systems and pushing funds and, and expanding privatization, which we're 100% against. So there just were a lot of issues that were taking place. And of course, if you don't know, you know, the majority of individuals have heard of Laquan McDonald. You know, who was shot 16 times. The mayor in his office attempted to cover this up. And because of that being exposed, he wasn't, you know, ousted prior to his term. But when he ran again, he lost to the current mayor, who is Lori Lightfoot. Just overall, you know, we just have a corrupt system that has consistently been focused on placing profit before the good of the people. Uh, we have incumbents at the in congressional level, like Danny K. Davis, who I'm running against. He's been in his current seat for over 20 years. He's been in politics for over 30 that are extremely hypocritical that again are focused on individual power and maintaining uh, the establishment Democratic Party dynamic. So you have an individual that says he's for immigrant rights, but yet is funded by Amazon, who, as we know, works with ICE, who we want to abolish. We have an individual that, again, says he supports the communities, yet we have multiple school closures, multiple mental health facility closures. We lack level one trauma centers in certain communities, which helped to lead to many of my 12 students who were shot uh, to die from gun violence. Just most recently, Michael Reese, who laid on the ground for over 20 minutes uh, while waiting for help. So there's just huge issues across the board. Of course, the corruption within our police department that exists, our congressional leaders play a role in that as well. So you sit back and you say to yourself, why does somebody that says, you know, they support immigrant families, but they work with Amazon? Why does somebody that says they're for Medicare for all, but yet they're, <laughs> they're funded by a big farm? How does that work? Uh, and I think what you get is an individual that is good on paper that often feeds into that narrative blue no matter who or they vote the right way. But yet, if you get outside of your bubble and you literally get into the communities, you'll see the vast disparities in wealth that exists where you can literally cross the street going from Oak Park, which is like 82 to 83,000 median income into the Austin community, which is like 27 to 30,000 to where everyone in Austin has to bring their money outside of the community because there's food deserts, because oh. there's no job opportunities, because there's no businesses with in our community to invest in and oftentimes let's keep it 100 because they don't feel safe so it just it's all Absolutely. interconnected and plays a role in certain communities thriving while other communities struggle and as i tell people you know poverty and disparity pay for everyone but who's poor and who's in despair so we just trying to speak truth to power and eliminate those structures that exist all right, let me hit you with this. We talk to a lot of people that are in blue states. And, you know, when we hear of national conversations about a reform and improving government, improving society, it's a lot of elect Democrats. But a lot of the people we talk to are people who are in Oregon, that are in Washington, that are in New York. 
and they say, hey, we have a lot of Democrats. We just talked to somebody who is in a state with a Democratic supermajority in their state reps, and they still have incredible amounts of corruption. If you are to look at your district and you described a lot of problems that are going on in your district right now, and if you were to like play doctor and like triage your district, what is the problem that you feel is at the root of the other problems that are going on in your district? I mean, what well, the ultimate root problem locally and nationally is capitalism. I mean, if you look at the history of this nation, it's built upon the genocide of natives and the enslavement of Africans and African descendants. Even when slavery ended on June 19th, 1865, we now have slavery by a new name to where you want to sharecropping in the prison industrial complex to where we continue to incarcerate predominantly black, brown and poor individuals. And we even have a current uh, presidential candidate who attempted to use slave labor uh, in regards to his call time. So it's an issue that remains and continues so for me, when your system is built on oppression, when a capitalistic system that has to have a top and a bottom, because this is indeed class warfare, it's the oppressed versus the oppressors, you cannot reform that system. And I truly believe that. So when we talk reform, it's not going to work uh, because I don't care who for take the police department, for example. If we understand our history again, I'm a history teacher. Police departments actually formed at local levels to uh, maintain slavery, to protect property, uh, which human beings were viewed as, uh, you know, to stop slave revolts, so on and so forth. So you have private and public police institutions and it built out from that. So how can you reform that when its DNA is oppressive? So it doesn't matter who you put in place or who you put in charge, we have to dismantle all these structures that exist. And of course, it's not gonna happen overnight. This is a marathon, not a sprint. It's taken hundreds of years to get us to this point, but it's very late than never, uh, you know? So we have to speak truth to power. And that's what I tell people, the Democratic Party is part of the problem. Why aren't we putting people first? Black Americans, for example, we're not always Democrats. You were black before the Democratic Party existed. You were a woman or transgender before the Democratic Party ever existed, if you look throughout our history. So why are we consistently putting the Democratic Party before us when they essentially count on our votes, uh, but don't give a damn about our empowerment? So yes, I'm a Democratic Socialist. We're working and running within the Democratic Party, but we're hoping to upend it and overturn it. And if it gets to the point that we realize that's not possible, the working class poor are going to continue to struggle, then we're going to have to paradigm shift and attack it from a different angle. But, but again, we have to eliminate that privilege that exists. And so many people that are in bubbles feel like because they're Democrats or because we're in a blue state or a blue area, it's good enough. What is good enough to those that are oppressed? <laughs> We have the ACA. Is that good enough where we still have millions of people without health care? Millions of people that are still dying? So we have to really wake up. You know, we have to really ask ourselves in any revolution, what are we willing to risk and sacrifice? Because no revolution is comfortable. No revolution puts civility before justice. So what's up? You know, that's what we tell people. That's what we tell people on a daily basis. That's what we call people out to do is just we got to bust ass and we got to sacrifice in this warfare. Your kind of comments on the inability to reform some of these systems ties into a greater dispute in, in the left about reform and revolution. So if these systems are kind of, it's it's real hard to reform them, what would you do in your capacity as uh, a U.S. congressman to move towards a, a situation in which abolition of, of these sorts of capitalist systems could be achieved? Well, first and foremost, I think, you know, at the ground level, because nothing changes at a systemic level nationally until it starts locally, we truly have to invest in educating our voters. Because if we look at the dynamic that exists currently, you know, with corporate-owned, extremely biased media, 
and with our current Democratic and Republican parties and institutions that, again, benefit from white supremacy and capitalism, we have to understand that it's not only Republicans that benefit from voter disenfranchisement, from voter divestment, from lack of voter education. Incumbents like Danny K. Davis within the 7th, think about this. You've been in office for over 20 years, and year after year, the talk and discussion is about low voter turnout, lack of voter engagement, and that doesn't bother, bother you as a leader. We need the type of leaders that are in office that are engaged and educated whether that's for their benefit or detriment personally, because it's about collective growth. I'll be damned if I sit back and only 70,000 people are voting in a, a congressional election cycle. That's ridiculous. When we have a district that has over 700,000 people and over 400,000 people that are registered to vote. So first and foremost, it starts with education. You know, utilizing our platform to work with our now six Democratic Socialist City Council members that we work with and other wonderful leaders within our communities to broaden the scope of the electorate and get individuals that I've often felt like I did when I was a younger black male, ignored, marginalized, and overlooked, that your vote and voice matters. And from that, you build outwardly and continue to build coalitions with these wonderful organizations that exist. So when I'm in that seat, it's not just me. It's not me, us. So we have these organizations in that seat as well, because while Danny Davis is funded by the big pharma, I'm funded by big poor. You know, Bernie Sanders is funded by big poor. So we're putting individuals within those seats that struggle and know that language of, of the struggle that exists. So that's huge, you know, education, building coalitions, and of course, identifying policies that are truly aimed at attacking capitalistic oppression. So 100%, the, the fight has already begun, but getting behind, you know, Medicare for all as a human right. Anytime you hear language such as option, access to, choice, Similar to civility, you know, those are languages and tools of the oppressor. We need human rights. So Medicare for All is a human right. The Green New Deal with focus on housing, of course, the homes guarantee, federal jobs guarantee, trade and college for all, while also retroactively forgiving student loan debt. We need to engage in these interconnected solutions because I guarantee you, look at gun violence, for example. Current representatives and leaders say, oh, we just need stricter gun, gun laws. They're failing, to, and they're ignoring oftentimes as well, are failing to realize the interconnected issue that exists with gun violence in our communities. If we have greater opportunity, if we have greater job opportunity, greater investment within our school systems and mental health facilities, I guarantee you the high levels of gun violence in communities like Chicago would decrease. Because right now you have essentially mm -hmm. just like a hyper, hyper local and hyper focused multiple individuals fighting for limited resources and opportunity. So no question you're going to have violence within these communities because individuals are desperate. So we just have to educate, build coalitions and, and push policies forward that are for the people. Yeah. Uh, now, kind of what with this uh, movement building and organizing and that sort of thing, what is the work that's to be done in between elections and in between getting people like you to represent the, the working poor groups of people in elected office? What is the work that we have to do in between getting that done? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Great question. I mean, again, it, it, it ties back into education and, and coalition building, you know, because elections come and go. Candidates come and go. You know, one day my ass is going to be dead and gone. But if we truly educated, if we truly pushed our community forward, you know, legacies last. And that's huge. You know, I mean, the great late Fred Hampton, you know, you can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. Like that never ends. So I think in between elections, what presently happens is, particularly with established uh, candidates and incumbents, is they run, win or lose. After that, you no longer see them in the community because they only are exerting effort 
to get your vote. <laughs> but after that, they're gone until the next election cycle. Uh, but again, because this is about movement, win or lose for us, we're still out there. You know, my nonprofit is still out there. My teaching is still out there. We're in the communities on a daily basis, still out there working uh, within this class struggle to build intersectional coalitions. So just continuing that movement, not stopping, you know, just simply because an election is over, just continuing and continuing and continuing. And it may seem like such a daunting task, but again, we never thought in Chicago that we would see six Democratic social the city council members for the longest time it was only one Carlos Rosas but now we have six and because that again was about coalition building not stopping continuing to spread the message continuing to educate and make those connections that were stronger together and why democratic socialism is a viable solution to a pervasive issues that exist so when we talk about democratic socialism, I think there's a lot of younger people that are more ideologically open because they have seen neoliberalism. They've grown up on it. They've seen like the consequences of it and they decided that they don't like it. I think for a lot of older brothers and sisters, there is kind of like a mentality that they are getting the best that they can possibly get out of the political order. So when you talk about socialism, especially to folks that are like above the age of like, let's say 45. So like they were in their prime when Bill Clinton was like the hope. How do you explain these concepts to like older black folks who also, they work their way up the democratic party structure, which is very seniority based. Right. So I personally think there's a little resentment of, well, they told us to put in the years and now we put in the years and now the younger generation want to do something totally different. So how do you kind yeah. of explain these concepts to them? Yeah, I mean, I think you try to simplify it and relate it to individual because what's life without progress? I mean, because to me, there is a lot of resentment. You see it at that level. You see it when individuals say free college and trade. And then somebody comes up and says, well, I paid for college. Uh, well, I tried to take it and make connections to things that we've gone through as a collective. Because imagine, imagine how you would feel if, again, Juneteenth, you know, June 19th, 1865, you're free. But you're, you're, you think your father or your mother that was in slavery and gave birth to you, you think they will resent you being free? You think they're going to look at you and say, well, we no. have to be slaves our entire lives. So now that you're free, that's not fair. Fuck that. You know, they had to do what they had to do within those time periods. But I guarantee you they were thinking in their heads, I want my child, I want my grandchild to be free and not have to experience these issues. And if we talk about class warfare, we have to understand that many of us are still mentally and almost physically enslaved, particularly when it comes to economic debt. How many of us cannot succeed and cannot excel because Sally Mae is calling us every damn day or knocking on our door looking for that money from a pervasive and predatory college loans that exist? Uh, you know, how many of us can't live because of a lack of a livable wage? We're making $7, $8 an hour, and they're talking about a fight for 15 in the Democratic Party. And let's be honest, it's not tied to inflation. So $15 isn't enough now, and it damn sure won't be enough in 2025. So we have to articulate that and have individuals understand that that progress, your great, great, you know, grandmother probably was a slave. Your great grandmother was a sharecropper. You were born, you know, in, in segregation. Your child was born outside of segregation after the civil, you know, so that's progress. You think each generation again is going to look and say, well, that's that's not fair. We're fighting for progress as oppressed classes of people. So I think when you make those connections and simplify it at that level, people kind of look silly, honestly. You know, we want to be better for the next generation. And also, I feel when I'm knocking on doors and making connections, because I don't only knock for myself, I also knock for Bernie. Uh, you know, 
we were the first congressional campaign within Illinois to endorse because, again, it's bigger than us, whether it helps us or hurts us individually, because we have a lot of Biden supporters. We had a lot of Harris supporters. We got a lot of Warren supporters within our district. But yeah. we don't knock on the door and say, hey, you know, Democratic Socialists here or, hey, you know, we're, we're knocking for Bernie Sanders here. What I try to do and what we all try to do is just share our truths within the, within the struggle, because no matter who you are, where you come from, struggle is a universal language. We may have different experiences, but if you've experienced struggling, if you experience poverty, if you experience living check to check, one emergency away from just losing it all, that's how you make those connections. And then after making those connections and relating to a voter, relating to a community member, that's when you then bring policy and ideology into play. Uh, then make those connections of what can we do for that next generation like our ancestors did to make it better for, you know, for them and for us. When we talk about issues of like kind of bringing people into the fold, educating them about socialism, questions like this, I think you kind of have to look at the uh, education disparity in this country as like a major factor in this kind of stuff, you know? So what do you think needs to be done in terms of like funding education, but not just funding it, funding the right kinds of education so that people could be more economically literate, be more politically literate, be more socially literate and culturally literate and not like just recreate these same cycles? Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, that, that responsibility, I feel, falls, uh, you know, on our on the shoulders of our government, who by design literally has prevented black, brown and impoverished communities from building what I call social and economic generational wealth. And you hit it on the head in a sense. Take myself, for example. I was literally the first individual in my family to graduate from college. Uh, but when it was time for me to attend college, you know, when I went to the military and, you know, decided to turn my life around, my parents couldn't help me. You know, so magnify that in times that by how many young adults are interested in college, but their parents love them just the same as anybody else, sacrifice just the same as anybody else, but they don't have that capital to sit down and actually help their youth through that process of applying for college, through that process of identifying possibly predatory institutions and loans that are not, don't make sense in a sense for your future. So then you have to seek outside counsel and outside help. Or if you look at economically, I've had 12 students die of gun violence. Why did all 12, why did we have to resort to a GoFundMe account? Because we didn't have life insurance policies that are often used with, you know, predominantly white families throughout the history to build generational wealth as well. Or property. Look at how redlining occurred. Look how we had predatory lending practices with banking. Look at how banks flat out denied black families loan. Uh, and we had, you know, white flight occur in particular communities to lower property value. This is all interconnected and it all prevented black families, brown families from building wealth. And we don't even have to get deep. But if you watch The Watchmen on HBO, it sucks that they're only going to do one season, I just heard. But it's a great show. But it ties directly into Tulsa, Oklahoma and the race riots that occurred. So even when we had segregation and we had black communities that were thriving, we had black banks, black businesses, black doctors, black lawyers, black dentists with, you know, working middle class. It was just that rich dynamic of multiple levels of economic success that allowed a community to thrive. It was burned to the fucking ground. People were murdered and attacked. So the government has played a direct role in this. So, you know, one thing we definitely have to look at, I'm a teacher, our funding models for our public educational systems are inequitable. Utilizing property taxes to fund our schools leads to great disparities in wealth and investment in schools. So I think we need to address those issues. I know there are certain areas throughout our country that use a Robin Hood style model 
to where they collect property taxes from multiple districts, identify which school uh, needs the most support and resources and then divvies it up in that way. But I truly believe at a federal level, you know, we need to reinvest in our educational systems because, of course, the current Trump administration is defunding public education. They just came out again. He's trying to attack our, our meal programs and, of course, overfunding our military. But we have to look mm-hmm. at that. Look how we're funding our public educational system. I think at a federal level, we need to create a task force to identify, thinking about equity, what is a baseline that every school should have? Every school. Because when I first started teaching in alternative school, I literally had three books, could not make any copies. And I taught freshmen through senior students in the same classroom. They had me teaching music online with three computers. I, I'm not musically inclined. I don't play an instrument. They had me teaching Spanish online. I'm not bilingual. I do not speak Spanish fluently. So it was essentially a housing center. It was a prison. Then you go to the charter school setting to where there was differences. You know, you lack union support. So teachers are literally getting fired left and right. There's high levels of nepotism. They get to selectively pick and choose what students enter into the school system. And then you go to the CPS, you know, public school systems, and you just see the vast disparities that exist. And now in the school I'm at now, we have teachers making $160,000 a year. Every student has an iPad. Every student has a computer, so on and so forth. So I feel like across the board, we need to create a task force to identify just at the baseline, just like a livable wage. We've identified what a livable wage would look like. So we need essentially like livable schools, or whatever we want to term it and call it, <laughs> but just a baseline that all schools need throughout the nation in order for students to relatively have access to opportunity and thrive. And then from there, we could work within the districts to create certain models to where we can still divvy up money for schools that have greater need and greater supports. We also need to completely 100% eliminate privatization of our educational school systems, along with our prison systems and otherwise. But I'm 100% against privatization because what it does is it siphons money away from our public school institutions. Charter schools are not doing better if you data across the nation. It's not like they're outpacing public school systems. And, you know, I just want to make it clear as well. I don't blame parents for choosing a charter school because they're just trying to do the best they can for their child. They're looking for opportunity similar to my parents did, you know, when I was younger. So I don't blame them for that, but that's on the government. So we need to look at that as well. You know, Title I funding was changed to every student to succeed act. You know, I think that should be recalculated and tied directly into, again, what is the baseline that every school needs? And we need to eliminate standardized testing. No type of funding should ever be based ever again determined upon, you know, a standardized test that's biased because let's be honest and I'll shut up after this. Our educational system is completely colonized and whitewashed. I mean, we got Martin Luther King Day coming up on Monday Yo. and it just kills me how we have these faux progressives, you know, the, these these faux woke individuals that consistently quote MLK consistently say how much don't know nothing about him consistently say how much they love him and how he was so peaceful when he was alive he was one of the most hated individuals within the country so many individuals wanted him dead because he was not only attacking racism but he was attacking economic inequality as well yo let me let me cut you off for a second martin luther king for people who do not know and like didn't read and that's fine because you get funneled into certain things through the educational system martin luther king was a revolutionary right he was nonviolent. But he was not a like a pacifist. Exactly. And I feel like the media kind of breaks things down into, well, Malcolm was violent and Martin was nonviolent. No question. Right. Malcolm had a lot of humanity in his message that is ignored by the media. And Martin was much more revolutionary than the press has like made him out to be after he passed. And I'm from Atlanta, so I know what's up. Exactly. I used to live in Atlanta, too. That's a shout out. I stayed off uh, Peachtree Street for a minute. Oh, there's like five Peachtree Street. So which one? Midtown? Uh, or what? Piedmont. I stayed across the street from Piedmont Park. Oh, OK. So yeah, yeah. Midtown. That's cool. And then I went to uh, move to Camp Creek Parkway for a minute with my homie. So shout out to the A. Uh, but yeah, I what, mean, no What question. year was that? Like, what time was that? This was 
2001 to 2002. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, no. So, you know, but you know, you're 100% right, but it's done on purpose because they want to sanitize history. They don't want you to learn about the Black Panther Party. They don't want you to learn about, you know, uh, Fred Hampton, who's from Illinois, who's, you know, an idol of mine, and I follow his teaching. They want you to think that Martin Luther King consistently put, uh, selected civility over justice when that is not true at all. And again, we don't even have to talk about people of color. Let, let's dig deep down in history and talk about John Brown. Yeah, they man. don't even talk about his white ass. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. shout out to John Brown, a white revolutionary. They don't want you to know about John Brown because, again, he was about that life, about arming individuals and having them help free themselves. So they don't, <laughs> they erase black, white, and etc. If you're a revolutionary, they try to erase or rewrite your history uh, because, again, it benefits uh, the majority. So that's a huge issue that needs to be talked about, and we need to address that within our school systems as well, because everything I learned about Fred Hampton, John Brown, Martin Luther King, the real Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Angela Davis, Asada Secura, the Black Panther Party overall happened in my home, you know, with my pops and my moms, not in the schools. Yeah. Oof. Oh, God. Yeah. So... <laughs> If we're talking about sweeping history under the rug and things like the racial wealth gap or the economic and educational inequality gap in this country, I think it's kind of important that we bring up something that we're passionate about on this podcast, something that we know that you're also interested in, but something that's a little bit of a touchy subject in America still, reparations. No question. Yeah, this is something that like a lot of people are still really uncomfortable talking about at all. But that's like all the more important reason for us to get it out here on the show today. So Anthony Clark, I think most people agree, you know, in 2020 that reparations is not, you know, 40 acres and a mule. It's also not necessarily just like a check sent no, to not every at all. black person or something like that. Not at all. What does reparations look like to you in terms of meaning meaningfully closing some of these gaps? Yeah, I mean, great question. Again, we're 100% for reparations. You know, we have to be bold. We're not afraid to discuss and talk about it because, again, by design, the government has played a role in oppression, so they need to play a direct role in empowerment. So essentially how I view reparations is similar to the Green New Deal in housing. So essentially everything that you do in regards to policies is kind of tied into the environment. You know, you think about housing, you think about how can we help and support the environment. Uh, you think about jobs, moving away from fossil fuels and, and dirty energy into clean energy. You're thinking about the environment. The same token we have to do with reparations and racial justice. When we look at legalization of cannabis, it just happened here January 1st, when we're pushing and continuing to push for legalization of cannabis at a federal level, you know, the end to the war on drugs, federal jobs guarantee, housing, you know, Green New Deal, of course, we just mentioned that. We always have to have a component, I believe, of racial justice and reparations within it to where funds are allocated, not for a one-time check, not for 40 acres and a mule. I wouldn't even know what the hell to do with a mule. I don't like nature like that. Uh, I love the environment, but, you know, I'm scared. Get animals like that. I got a mule around. What am I going to do with a mule? You know, uh, if I see a possum, I'm running real talk. But, uh, but we have to look at how can we tie those funds into, again, stopping that cycle that has existed of preventing generational growth and investing in generational growth, looking at how we're funding our public school systems, looking at how we're funding our mental health facilities, particularly in black communities, communities of color, black communities. That's how it has to happen. If we're talking about a federal jobs guarantee, what percentage and what money is going to be allotted to ensuring that black Americans and individuals within communities hardest hit by the systemic issue that exists will disproportionately now benefit? When we're looking at, again, cannabis, you know, in Illinois, of course, there's a fight to get greater numbers of black and brown, you know, 
know, cannabis dispensary owners and growers and so on and so forth and put funds within the schools. You know, shout out to Evanston, Illinois, to where they're trying to work on some policy to where they're allocating millions of dollars through their taxation to ensure that black families can remain in their communities. So, again, thinking at a long term scope, generationally, how can we build socially and economically? And what does that investment look like in regards to proving our school systems uh, in regards to working with, you know, home lenders and so on and so forth, making sure that our banks who have throughout history been predatory and giving these high interest loans that people default on and then you're taking the house from them. Everything has to be tied in. You know, there's multiple, you know, answers when they ask for reparations. You know, I don't have the concrete answer, of course, but that's my answer in regard to how I view reparations. Every policy, every policy, no matter what it is, has to have a component and focus on the black community who's been disproportionately impacted of how we can disproportionately now empower, you know, to move forward and build that generational capital. So you mentioned uh, cannabis legalization in your state, which, you know, on its head, like seems like a really good thing. A lot of people, you know, kind of celebrate these victories and to an extent we should. But cannabis legalization has been criticized from the left for not doing enough in terms of like a justice element. No question. What's missing right now from cannabis legalization in general in this country to like bring some justice to it? Yeah, I mean, no, shout out to Kim Fox locally. You know, she's trying to release, you know, thousands of individuals that have been incarcerated. Uh, But in regard to even locally, you know, right now what we have is essentially if you want to grow in your home, you have to have a medical cannabis card. I do. So you can grow up to five plants. In regards to ownership, they tried to come up with legislation that stated that a certain percentage of dispensary owners had to be of color. But what happens is because there's still loopholes that exist, you have predominantly wealthy white individuals who are essentially looking for faces uh, of their organizations or their network to where they front the money. That black or brown face will be 51 percent. And then essentially after five years, they buy you out. So that's not really long term investment. You know, that's temporary. Uh, We still have issues in regards to our state allocating 8 percent of money from taxation to go into police departments now uh, more thoroughly and I guess ferociously attacking our street dealers who are also predominantly black and brown and essentially our individuals just trying to take care of their families. So I think at a federal level when it is, because it will happen, become legal at a federal level, we have to have 100% expungement and release of individuals that have been incarcerated for a plant, for medicine, you know, for something that shouldn't have been fucking illegal in the first yeah. place. So 100% release and expungement. And when we say 100% release and expungement, it cannot be inequitable to where we're expecting individuals incarcerated to locate lawyers, find lawyers, and then pay for their defense. No, immediate, like just release. You know, they shouldn't have to look for or search out anyone or anything. Just release them, free them all, and make sure that they're expunged. Uh, so that's a huge issue. Also, greater allocation of funds to invest directly into educational systems, predominantly black communities, brown communities also, and impoverished communities that are divested in with their infrastructure and their education. Uh, We have to make sure of that and make sure that that money cannot be touched because what happened in Illinois, it always happens is, I take our lottery, for example. Money got from our lottery from taxation was supposed to go to our educational system. But of course, politicians started to double dip. Uh, They started to, you know, pull into the money, siphon it out, uh, reallocate it, change the rules, so on and so forth. And then you had a smaller pot for our educational system. So we have to have, we have to be sure that money allocated at a federal level going directly into black and brown and impoverished communities to invest 
uh, you know, that's a huge issue across the board. You know, shout out to Las Vegas. You know, one thing that I can shout them out for, I just saw they passed a law to where employers can no longer discriminate against their employees for ingesting cannabis. And I think that's huge. We have to ensure that we don't have employer discrimination. Uh, that we should eliminate all testing. Employers should not be able to test anyone for cannabis. You know, I think that's huge as well. So, you know, multiple things, but off the top of my head, you know, again, direct racial justice investment in communities, ensuring that employers can no longer discriminate against employees. We need to expand hemp as an agricultural crop. That's huge. We need to expand our, our medical medicinal usage of cannabis because I guarantee you that will help to eliminate the opioid crisis that exists. And let's be honest, the opioid crisis has always existed, but our government didn't really give a damn or media until they started impacting middle class and upper middle class and wealthy white families. But black individuals and brown individuals have been hit by opioids for decades and decades. So there's a lot of work to do. You know, we briefly celebrate, but we know the fight continues. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So Bernie Sanders has been obviously uh, a, a large force in the the American political left as of late, especially in his 2016 and 2020 presidential runs. And there are elements of his platform on cannabis that kind of line up with yours. So not specifically about cannabis, but just in general, what do you think of how Bernie Sanders has been conducting his campaign and his policy? And yeah, what's your assessment of him? Yeah, I mean... Is he perfect? No, no one is. You know, we all learn on a daily basis. We all can do better. And I'm not supporting Bernie Sanders because it's Bernie Sanders. I'm supporting Bernie Sanders because he represents the movement that we're all a part of and we're all in. It's bigger than one individual. You know, electing Bernie Sanders to office is not going to save us, but electing him to office and ensuring that he pushes the policies that are part of this movement and we continue to work at a ground level, we definitely can have systemic change. So he's the only candidate that's part of a movement. The rest of the candidates are not. So that's why I support, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign. His policies, to the greatest extent, I think directly identify capitalism as a root cause issue, directly identify class warfare, and are directly targeting empowering working class poor individuals. So I believe that's a huge boon for him as well, and you know why I support him. So I'm loving what I'm seeing. You know, of course, you know, the corporate-owned media, of course, other candidates. This country does not want to see that change occur. So I'm cautiously optimistic because I don't put anything past them <laughs> in regards to stopping systemic change from happening but i'm cautiously optimistic yeah. and, and again you know he's he's the only candidate that's fluent in speaking you know struggle so that's why i support him let me ask about a couple of women that are in your political life one of your earlier relationships was with uh cory bush can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about her and uh what she did for you and what she brings to the table uh, in terms of your political thought process Mm -hmm. And uh, I would also like, if you feel like it, uh, to discuss Kena Collins, who is your opponent in mm -hmm. the primary, one of your opponents. Can you kind of tell people like what you think about her? Do you approve, disapprove? Does she have strengths, weaknesses, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, definitely. First and foremost, you know, our foundation communicates to individuals that, you know, sexism, you know, rape culture, misogyny is systemic. Men are systemically part of the problem. And I truly believe and we truly believe that when you're part of the problem, you have to actively work to be part of the solution. And that's what we've dedicated our lives to. You can't call yourselves an ally. You have to earn that from the individuals that are directly oppressed that you are trying to support. So throughout our history, you know, we've worked with changing the sexual assault policy at a school level. You know, we partner with young women and young women of color. And that's huge. And we continue to do that work. You know, uh, one of our biggest things that we did was protest against R. Kelly, continue to, you know, educate the local community in regards to the issue of his predatory behaviors and those that protected him and how that's a pervasive issue. So there's a lot of work that we do in regards to education. Corey is just a ride or die. You know, uh, <laughs> Corey is like the ace, like the home girl. Like we ride, you know what I'm saying? Like if it was like, if this was Voltron, Corey would be one of my lions. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like 
Corey will be one of the lions. You know what I'm saying? So Corey's everything. You know, she believes in me. I believe in her. Uh, we lean on each other, you know, because being 100% grassroots is extremely difficult. At times you may doubt yourself. At times the roads may get tough, uh, but we call each other. You know, we're there for support, voices of reason, and we, you know, provide each other with that support structure. Uh, you know, we've been a boost ground with her in Ferguson protesting. She's been boosted on the ground with me in Chicago getting our asses beat by police as we call out the injustices Yo. that exist. Uh, so, shit. I mean, you know, Corey's everything. You know, she's a rider. She's always going to be a rider and I'm always going to ride for her, you know, like to death, you know, to, to I'm no longer ten toes down. Like, Corey is my ace. So, you know, I just, if she hears this or, you know, whatever, like I thank her and I love her, you know, and thank her for being the powerful leader that she is and I thank her for believing in me and uh, supporting me and my efforts to be a greater leader within this movement. Uh, in regards to, you know, other candidates in this race, we actually have two women, you know, running in this race in the Illinois 7. We have five individuals total. You know, one individual is running as an independent. I truly believe that in a democracy, everyone should be able to run because I do believe that when you run, it enriches, you know, the race. Uh, it enriches the ability to individuals to hear multiple ideas, multiple platforms and ideologies, how we take this movement forward. You know, Kena supported us in 2018. You know, we got our vote. You know, I thank her for that. And, you know, I thank her for running, you know, in 2020, if that's her choice. And I'm not an individual that negatively talks about anyone. I know you didn't ask that. Uh, yeah, but I, no, honestly, I just to yeah, 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 yeah. But, but honestly, I have nothing negative to say. You know, I think it's up to the voters to decide. And we're in this race because we truly believe that you have to place ideology, you know, before any type of identity ideology and the policies that are going to be utilized to collectively empower and move us forward are what take precedent in this class warfare uh, that we, we are experiencing. So at the end of the day, we look at our policies, look at our actual history, who's actually been on the ground, who's actually built the coalitions. We have, the, I mean, by far the most <laughs> endorsements in the race, over 17. We have the most coalitions built throughout the race. We have the actual nonprofit we have the actual organization. So we've mobilized. And, it, and I say we because it's bigger than me. So it's actually, you know, black women and brown women running alongside me, trans women running alongside me, trans men and so on and so forth, agendered running alongside me. So, yeah, I wish her luck, wish her well. What I did do, I challenged the other individuals in the race. I said when it gets to a certain point that we should all put in on a poll. And if it's truly about the movement and truly about getting the incumbent out, who's ever a clear second, everyone else should step down and support that individual that's running second. I believe that. I put that out there. Uh, no one else agreed. So, you know, it is what it is. But we're going to continue to fight. And we definitely have the strongest movement. You know, social media is extremely strong and growing. Boost to the ground is extremely strong and growing. We just had over 30 individuals at our last canvassing event. You know, December was huge for us. Cause I don't know if you all know this. I was actually hit by a car in August, even a campaign Whoa. event. No, I ain't hear a, about that, man. That's crazy. Yeah, it, was a, it was a hit and run. So I broke my leg. Uh, Fractured my ankle, tore ligaments, so it was all messed up, bro. So I was in the bed, you know, battling depression, the team. We almost canceled the campaign, but what happened was we're part of the movement. You know, people didn't give up on us. I ended up out there door knocking, hopping upstairs, falling downstairs with my leg scooter. And, you know, December was huge for us. And we're here, you know. So at the end of the day, that's all I can say. You know, I wish everybody else luck. You know, I believe the movement is more important than any individual success or title. We believe we're running a strong second, and we're going to continue to push forward. Yo, let me tell you this on a personal level. Like, I did not discover you until, like, November, right? Right. But now, when I'm logging on to Twitter, like, I have the, I got the bell clicked on you. So, like, <laughs> I'm thinking when I'm waking up, yo, what's Anthony doing? So, <laughs> the fact that you pushed through, if you had quit when you had been hit by that car, though, I would never have heard of you, right? Right, right. So, it means, so, the people put you up and put you on, that's helping y'all uh, uh, elevate and, like, I heard of you. So hopefully, like six months from now, 
like when this this shit we're doing blows up, somebody will hear of me in the same way and will be inspired to continue what they're doing or kind of model what I'm saying. So yeah, it's it's an excellent thing that they lifted you up and helped you push through that, man. No, I appreciate that. How's your leg that. now? Oh, uh, you know, we're good. We're doing physical therapy when we can. Uh, you know, hmm. it is what it is. Yeah, all right. Um, we don't yeah, want to take up your whole Clark. yeah, your whole day. What do people need to do to join your campaign? Yes. Uh, you know, our website is www.boatanthonyclark.com. Our Twitter and social media accounts is Anthony B. Clark 20. You know, definitely rock with us. Join us. Again, we're just a small role in a larger movement, but we're giving everything that we have. Uh, you know, we love it if you could donate. We all recognize how hard we're working in the struggle. So please understand any donation, no matter the amount, is never taken for granted. They truly appreciate it. We're giving everything that we have. Again, if you want to volunteer, you could. You don't even have to be in Chicago. The phone bank, we have an online system to where you can call in. The computer are populated number and you can reach out to voters hit them up you know share your truth with them make those connections and if you are in the shy you know holler at us come out and, and, and door knock with us come out and canvas we not only canvas for ourselves but we also canvas for bernie as well trying to change those neoliberal and centrist minds and uh you know bring them over to safety and savior awesome. uh but uh <laughs> yeah man and we, and we just ask people to you know ask yourself what are you really in risk and sacrifice because if you rock with us it has to go beyond the facebook post it has to go beyond social media it has to go beyond attending the march and thinking you're an ally you got to earn this shit and give everything that you have for change and you know all power to the people hey 100 a real one anthony clark dropping by the studio just incredible yeah man thank you for coming by yeah we also have a, a patreon it's patreon.com slash not safe we spend like a hundred dollars roughly sometimes more sometimes less on the show per month and uh you know chipping in a little bit kind of helps us because we show ain't making no money definitely out. definitely but it's it's good that we can elevate uh other voices and we have a little fun sometimes on the show as well so uh absolutely please support the show and please support anthony clark he is running in illinois seventh and that's a very big district so if you see a change of power in that district that's something that's going to make national news and it's going to give that winner a national profile and when you talk about what y'all want discussed nationally it's the kind of stuff that y'all are hearing uh here tonight and that journey continues hey uh when is the date of the primary so the primary takes place march 17th of course early voting starts you know possibly two weeks prior to march 17th so just make sure you stay connected you know just make sure you stay engaged and again we're trying to earn your vote you know i'm challenging you learn about every candidate in race it's not just about anthony clark i want you to educate yourselves and then come home <laughs> and then come to the real yeah, right. uh, uh winning victory in the movement so yeah vote it's our power absolutely uh thank y'all for coming thank you for coming anthony uh this is not safe for wonks brandon buchanan here with kennedy cooper and Leia rose uh yeah hey. so yeah thank yeah, you so good. much this was wonderful thank you all fantastic Appreciate interview it. thank you thank you so much y'all take care be safe out there absolutely and thank y'all for listening good night everyone. Right. good night